from Colorado Public Radio and PRX. This is On Something. Is this thing on? Hello? Uh, hello? Yes, it's me. Hi. I'm Anne-Marie Awad, and you are listening to On Something, but kind of a unique episode of On Something. So bear in mind, while you listen to this, we here at On Something are hard at work on season two. And as an act of goodwill and gratitude, we have a little something for you. This bonus live episode, our very, very first of both of those things, of like a bonus episode and a live episode. Oh, and It's a little different from our typical episodes. The On Something crew dropped into Boston recently to hear how Massachusetts is handling legalization less than a year after it's taken effect. And we talked about all kinds of issues they've been facing. And we compared them to Colorado. That's where On Something is based. We've had legal recreational weed for more than five years now. So today, a conversation with the cannabis reporting team at the Boston Globe. Three reporters covering newly legal weed in Massachusetts. You'll hear from Dan Adams. He used to cover the alcohol industry and other regulated businesses. And now he writes the Globe's This Week in Weed newsletter. You'll hear from Naomi Martin, who previously covered crime and politics in Louisiana and Texas. And Felicia Gans. She's a digital producer and reporter at The Globe who focuses on marijuana. From the very beginning of this conversation, we all realized we had a lot in common. But Naomi and I had one thing in particular in common. Good evening, everybody. I have to ask this, but my mom is in the audience tonight. Mine is too. (laughs) All right. So great question to start with. How do you guys explain what you do to your parents? Um, my parents initially were just like thrilled that I was coming back to Boston from the South. (laughs) They were like, whatever you're going to do, just we're glad you're coming back. Um, but over time they've gotten really excited about it. Um, like at first they weren't thrilled about the topic, but over time they've gotten really excited. Uh, my mom actually keeps like a note in her phone of like all her story ideas for me. She's a juvenile criminal attorney. And so she has tons of ideas, um, related to those aspects that she sees every day. So it's exciting. Okay. Since your mom is here and also that's great that she keeps a note in her phone. Can we just give mom a hand? That's awesome. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, mom. (laughs) She has great ideas too. Thank you. You, um, you explain it to them the way you explain it to any reader that might not be super involved in cannabis world prior to reading our stories. You just kind of start from the beginning. You figure out where they're at, um, and you explain the basics at their level and whatever that means. So you kind of pick up on their personality. If they're a parent that might really like jokes, you make jokes. Um, <laughs> but if there's someone that will appreciate the seriousness of the industry, you kind of go at that angle. Very cool. Uh, my parents were pretty cool with it. They were... Um sort of 70s progressives, although... They were like, can you get us some weed? No. So believe it or not, my, my dad was in a, a band in college, but his nickname in the band was Clean Livin' Bob. So... Ah. But he has since uh, tried some CBD for a sore shoulder and reported positive results, so we'll take the wins we can get. Oh, that's always the gateway drug for the parents now, is the CBD for the bad back or something. Yeah. Where's, where's the ad with the egg in a frying pan with the CBD? Yeah. <laughs> and what about your mom, man? Oh, man. Mom, do you want to come up here and talk into the mic? No. <laughs> um, I, right before I 
kind of took on this podcast, I was a little bit general assignment. And then before I was an education reporter. Um, and so my, my mom in the beginning was always like, can't you make a podcast about education? Like they have schools in Colorado. <laughs> Poor mom. So one of Colorado's earliest challenges with legalization was edibles. Um, now, Maureen Dowd, who's a columnist for the New York Times, sort of made us famous for this. She came to Denver the first year that we had legal recreational sales. And so Maureen Dowd tried a pot candy bar in her hotel room, and she got so high she thought she had almost died. <laughs> and then she wrote a column for the New York Times about it. Um, so Maureen kind of became our canary in the coal mine, right? She wrote about how there was no instructions on the label of that candy bar, or there wasn't a serving size. And then after that, we like regulated the crap out of edibles. Um, so Dan, I'm wondering, are there, are there similar fears here about edibles? Definitely. And I, I think, you know, anyone who's a marijuana consumer has probably had that sort of rookie cookie experience. The classic thing that someone who's new to marijuana does, right? Like you have a edible, you're like, is it working? I don't know. And then 45 minutes later, you're like, yeah, I'm kind of hungry. There's more edibles on the counter. And then, you know, an hour later, you're in low earth orbit. Um, so, yes, yeah, so we do have a lot of regulations around edibles, like precisely because of sort of the Marine Dowd uh, scenario. Um, so for, for one thing, uh, our edibles are all divided into five milligrams of uh, THC servings. And, uh, you know, the, the, the labels are covered in warnings. Contains multiple servings. Don't use this if you're pregnant. Don't use this if you're driving. Maybe just don't use this at all. I mean, there's, there's science on this. And the question is, how how many warnings do you want on a label? Because you want it to be effective. You want people to actually read it. If it's a, if it's a you know, Walgreens receipt of disclaimers, <laughs> 10 miles long. People I believe you mean CVS receipt. Oh, sorry. Um, <laughs> but uh, you, d you don't want to have so many warnings that people just habitually disregard them. Because you actually can't, you know, we, I think as a team, we've been at pains to be very accurate about what the risks are and are not about marijuana. We want to be very clear-eyed about that. We don't want to be engaged in fear-mongering. Um, nor do we want to gloss over the actual risks. And the edibles, they present an actual risk. I mean, you may not uh, die, your heart may not stop, but you could become extremely uncomfortable if you have too many edibles. It could be extremely dangerous for you to be driving if you become that disoriented. So it is important that they have clear uh, dosing, that they have clear labels. But I think the conversation now is, do we dial back some of that laundry list of warnings and focus on the ones that are really important so consumers can make good choices? Um, in Colorado, we've had an issue with uh, an increase in ER visits for children when it comes to edibles. So Naomi, I'm wondering if you guys have seen things like that here, a lot more people taking things accidentally or taking more than they meant to. Yeah, we have. Um, we saw like a, a small number, but it's still alarming um, of an increase uh, in the last few years of children under five accidentally, you know, eating their, you know, parents or, or caretakers um, edible. And, and so we've seen a spike in um, poison control calls, which is not good. Um, I think one of the things that you know, people need to be aware of is just like how easily it can happen. Have you guys figured out a, a way of handling that? I know you guys are five years ahead of us, so I'm curious whether Colorado everything does is childproof to death. Yeah, it's like um, everything is in an individual wrapper, and then the container itself has to be childproofed. And then when it leaves the dispensary, it's got to go in a childproof bag. And then there's labels all over in every individual piece of edible marijuana. It's, I mean, 
I wasn't kidding when we sa- I said we regulate the crap out of it. Like, um, but it's still scary because it's like if if a kid sees a chocolate bar, like they they're not going to know that it you know could make yeah, them kids sick. don't always know what childproofing is exactly so <laughs> it's just like think it's, it's so important for parents i think to lock it up but they don't think of it as like a gun that they need to lock it up they think of it as just you know their food or whatever and so i think that's part of it that that can be a challenge i'm, I'm curious also have there been concerns in colorado about the sustainability of having that much packaging because that's that's something that comes up here is we want to make it as childproof as possible but when you have packages on packages on packages and you you know you're unraveling five different pieces of plastic that you're about to throw away to get to your like one little gummy at the bottom of it all uh it's just not sustainable at all i mean is that something that comes up this question brought to you by the pacific ocean (laughs) (laughs) um no that's a great question actually because right now in the state regulations really the biggest requirement for packaging is that it's got to be childproof and then there's no other requirement as far as materials recyclability recyclers in colorado have the discretion whether or not they want to take containers that have touched pot Uh, A lot of times when they have, they don't. They just throw them out. Um, So the way that it stands right now is there's kind of no incentive to do it. There are people in the industry that are sort of concerned about this and want to make sustainable packaging. Um, But it is something usually that they do and pass the expense on to the customer. Um, So like one of the places that I've been going to recently, they started packaging all of their weed in glass jars, which are nice and beautiful, but not childproof. (laughs) And uh, also they cost extra. They charge you like an extra few bucks if you buy weed because it comes in a nicer container. So I think it's something that the industry is trying to figure out. But state regulators are are definitely a lot more concerned with whether or not a thing is childproof. It would be nice if we could do like bulk. Like, you know, when you go to Whole Foods and you put your quinoa and like... Put all my weed in a bag? (laughs) That would be great. (laughs) Or you could bring your own like glass jar, you know, and not have to reuse. I don't know. I'm just making up stuff. Where where are we on hemp packaging, right? There is, I think there's one dispensary in my neighborhood actually that's looking into that. But again, it's it's really always industry driven. Apparently, you can make anything out of hemp. I, Apparently, I, you can. And and <laughs> CBD can cure any disease. Exactly. Yes. Hallelujah. It can't. Please don't listen to on something. We did a whole episode about it. Um, so this actually dovetails with another like really early on concern for Colorado, which was an increase in children using marijuana. And it was something I think when people voted for legalization, people were really worried about. But it never ended up materializing. And this is according to data that the state collects um, actually as part of legalization. Every year they're supposed to collect a certain type of stats. So Naomi, I'm wondering, like, how much is that youth use a concern here? And what are regulators doing about it? Oh, it's a huge concern here. I mean, I think that's probably one of the number one um, arguments by opponents of legalization, um, that it's sending the wrong message to the kids. Um, you know, obviously proponents argue that alcohol is legal too, and we found a way to talk to kids about that. Um, but, you know, so we've, we, it's obviously a little too early here to know what's happened so far in Massachusetts uh, since legalization occurred. But over the last 10 years, we have seen a lowering of youth marijuana use. Um, and so it'll be interesting to see whether that continues or whether that changes. Um, some of the things that regulators are doing here is, you know, the childproof packaging. Um, uh, you have to be 21 to enter the dispensaries and they check your ID like 50 times. Um, there's, oh, also, too, huh? <laughs> there's also, um, you know, an intense seed to sale tracking system so that people can't like be diverting it to the black market. Um, but I will say one thing that 
I feel like is is sort of left out of this conversation a lot of the time is how many kids, you know, really sick kids are benefiting from uh, medical cannabis. I've talked to a pediatrician here who was telling me that he has patients who um, have severe autism where their families couldn't, you know, be functional and now they are or a kid who or a girl who was super anxious and couldn't go to school and now is able to and so I think you know when we talk about child use it's also important to recognize that it is like a very nuanced complicated topic Um, I met one girl who was able to graduate high school but she um, and so she's functioning to a certain level she has a job um, but she does have to smoke three blunts a day and you know that's as low as she's been able to like reduce her her um, usage and so you know it's just a challenge I think that schools are dealing with and um, groups that deal with kids to try to figure out how to get them to reduce their use in a way that is realistic and not just like shunning them so that all they do is smoke weed all day um, but at the same time getting them to be uh, productive. Hey, it's me again with a quick note and an update. So when Colorado legalized, there was concern that use among young people was going to go up. And as it turns out, it has decreased. But now Colorado has the highest youth vaping rates in the country. And people have been asking, is there a link to marijuana legalization? Well, there's no proven link. But a lot of people worry that because of legalization, vaping is much more visible. A lot of these devices can be used for either tobacco or marijuana, and no one else around you could tell what you're consuming. When we recorded this conversation in October, Massachusetts actually had a far-reaching ban on vaping, on tobacco and cannabis. It was the only one in the country. And since then, the ban has been lifted. But as you might imagine, at this time, the Globe's cannabis team was doing a lot of reporting on it. So anyways, back to Naomi. So I'm sure you all heard of the mysterious vaping-related lung illnesses that have killed, I think, 26 people now. And like 1,300 um, people have been severely injured uh, with bad breathing problems. And Governor Charlie Baker um, took the extreme step of banning all vapes, both nicotine and marijuana. Um, So that's been a huge deal here. Uh, We've seen people, like we've talked, Dan and I had talked to a bunch of consumers last week who, um, a lot of former smokers who had been vaping and turned back to cigarettes, Um, others who were driving. That's crazy. I know. And um, others who have turned, who have driven to New Hampshire, Rhode Island um, for medical marijuana patients. They, they're able to get products in other states sometimes, like in Rhode Island or Maine. Um, and then there's a lot of people going to the illicit market, going online, um, Alibaba and Craigslist and websites, eBay are selling you know tons of jewels and things like that that you can't get in stores here. Um, so I think we're just beginning to see the effects and it'll be really interesting. What are they doing in Colorado? I mean, the biggest way that this has played out has been trying to figure out if there is some sort of link to marijuana legalization. Well, I I think it's important to bifurcate this into two problems, right? So one of those problems is the large increase in the number of, you know, youth using nicotine vapes, like such as Juul's. And as far as I can tell, that's happened largely independently of anything related to marijuana. It's something that's just become really like faddish in high schools and the devices have become so discreet that they're very easy to sort of smuggle in, to use in the bathroom and things like that. And I think we should all be worried about that because as much, let's just say for a moment that vapes are safe. Um, 
they may play a role in helping people get off of combustible cigarettes, which we know are deadly and are extremely dangerous. Um, the, the question, though, is, is a whole new generation of kids getting addicted to nicotine who wouldn't have otherwise smoked? Because, you know, combustible cigarettes aren't really cool anymore. They're, they're gross, right? And uh, sorry, I'm not trying to stigmatize people who smoke, but um, <laughs> I, they're not cool. And I think and kids, kids are, um, you know, kids are using like a, a, a ton of these. And so the vaping ban, on one hand, is an attempt to okay, how, how are the high schoolers like getting these nicotine vapes and let's stop that? And that's reasonable. Are they being sold by retailers who aren't checking IDs or are they being ordered online where, um, from what I can tell, you, you know, it's pretty easy to order, even from a legitimate source before the uh, ban, you could kind of put in your mom's driver's license, right? If you could just like take a picture of it in her purse, you could go on there and pretty easily get the stuff shipped to your door. Then totally separately from that, we have all these vaping illnesses that have now killed um you know, like more than 20 people and, and have made well over a thousand sick. That's also really serious. As far as we can tell, we, we don't know the cause of it, but it, all the signs are pointing to that being from illicit marijuana vapes. So yeah, to me, black market that's vapes. right. And that's a totally, you know, separate, almost policy consideration. It's a whole, that's a whole different sort of intellectual universe from the like youth nicotine vaping issue. The problem is now these conversations have sort of been smashed together by this ban. And I think we're having trouble pulling it apart. And, you know, like some, some aspects of the, the ban are objectively absurd. So I've been covering this on a national level and kind of keeping track of what's happening in the other states. And the, the most concerning thing, I think, for the future of vaping, if vaping turns out to be um, safe with the right products in there, um, is that it's it's pitting the nicotine vaping industry against the cannabis vaping industry when at the end of the day, we need to figure out what is making people sick get rid of that ingredient in vapes if it's possible and then create a vaping product that actually is safe for people to use. We don't actually know. And meanwhile, what about the patients? What about the medical marijuana patients right. who may rely on that? I mean, not not every disorder that can be treated with marijuana, you know, is it appropriate to use an edible for, right? I mean, no, some, that's pe- very fair, some people yeah. need a more fast acting um, form of it, whether it's like a, a fast onset kind of an anxiety attack or, or like an episode of, uh, of having a seizure or something like that. And to say that it's better somehow for a patient to combust medicine, I mean, to smoke, I mean, um, you know, to smoke flour, I, you know, it's hard for me to believe that that's healthier for people. I want to shift gears a little bit and ask you about all of the dispensaries in Boston. There's all so no, many. All none of them? All none of them. Um, do you guys want to wager a guess at how many we have, like, just in Denver? Just in Denver, wow. Y'all, y'all got that green mile, right? 40? 40? 80? I don't know. 100? 1,000. A thousand. No, we have like uh, between 150 and 200, something like that. There used to wow. be like, people used to love saying this. <laughs> people used to love uh, reciting this factoid about, uh, oh, Denver has more dispensaries than Starbucks's. I'll have you all know that one of our reporters did count, and it's wrong. <laughs> more Starbucks. Outdated. Do you want to guess how many we have in the whole state? Oh, man. It's like... I looked this up before I met you guys, too. But now I can't remember. It's like 30? Not even. Really? Wow, that was optimistic. <laughs> wow. We're at 28 right now. Um, oh, there's wow. only two that are actually even within relative public transportation distance of Boston. I say relative because the Newton one, when it's 20 degrees outside, you're not going to want to walk from the T. Um, and you have to make an also, appointment. Yep, it's also appointment only. Um, the only one that you can actually walk up to right now and get to from the T. Who's going to make an appointment to buy their drugs? I'm sorry. 
I just, that's like, that's like almost the same thing as just having a dealer, right? Like, I thought the attraction of legal weed was that I could go to a store and buy right. it. Except it's a, even worse, though, because you have to be on time. I don't, I don't do well with that. But it, it has become really problematic. I mean, it, the biggest issue, obviously, right now is access. It's the fact that the majority of people um, are living in eastern Massachusetts and, and can't get to a dispensary without it being an inconvenience. What has been the effect, do you think, of having so many dispensaries in Denver? I mean, here it feels very, like, taboo still. Have you noticed any change in how people, like, mainstream acceptance of it? Um, I, so, yeah, so we have a lot of dispensaries in Denver. Um, I definitely do have the ability to leave my house and just go to a store and buy weed when I please. Uh, so I think there's certain things we take for granted. Um, I think that the culture sort of, I guess it's mostly accepted it. I think we have, we live more with like uh, PSAs probably at this point than you guys do. Like the state invests a lot of money in this fictional bud tender who makes commercials about responsible bud use and ads on TV saying like, hey, you know, make sure you put your weed in a locked place away from your kids. Yeah, I'm trying to think about what else. We have these pamphlets for people who come from the airport about like how not to take too much weed. <laughs> So welcome to Colorado. Welcome don't to don't Col get too stoned. Don't get too mile high. <laughs> <laughs> um, one, one thing I'm curious about, and this is something that you know we're still trying to calibrate here. Um, how do your regulators balance, on one hand, you know, wanting to have marijuana be accessible, convenient, and cheap enough that it undermines the illicit market? Whereas we've talked about with the vaping situation, there's more danger, right? There could be flour with pesticides, um, sketchy people. Um, yeah. Uh, so how do you undermine that market while not incentivizing, on the other hand, consumption, right? Because, you, you know, you look at the data from the alcohol industry, and basically the more stores there are, the more free they are to advertise, um, and, and just the fewer rules uh, apply to them, the more people in that area drink alcohol. And so you don't want the government in a situation where, where they're actually, like, driving or incentivizing cannabis consumption necessarily, right? Um, so how, how has Colorado struck that balance? So there's been a few different ways. Is, um, dispensaries can't be too close to a school. That's a big one. A big chunk of the tax money uh, that we get from legal weed goes towards behavioral health programs in schools, drug use prevention programs in schools. Obviously, the youth use piece is a really big part of it. Um, I think also what's really interesting, too, is that Colorado regulators basically just copy-pasted the same advertising rules around cigarettes um, to marijuana. So they can't advertise on TV. They can't be in a lot of print publications, although we have a publication in Colorado, it's just like all dispensary ads. Um, but, um, so you can't, there can be pot stores everywhere, but they can't advertise all willy nilly. Um, I think a side effect of that is that all of our highways have been adopted by pot businesses. <laughs> Most of them. <laughs> we just wrote about that here, and it turns out that uh, so a lot of these adopt a highway signs that the, the marijuana companies bought. It doesn't look like they're legal because you know the signs are so small. There's only room for the logo, and they didn't put all the like mile you know long list of disclaimers on it. So now they're going to have to take them down because it doesn't have the sort of asterisk. By the way, don't do this, 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 and this. By the way, contains THC. Um, so that's so interesting that you guys only have like 28 dispensaries. Because we have like 500 in the state. You could call it interesting. You could call it sad. When you have that much choice, how do you um, decide among them? Because I, oh. I, mean, I literally have two stores to choose from. So, and each of them has like one strain. So it's kind of like if oh I want God. an Indica, I'm going to go to Garden Remedies. And if I want a Sativa, I'm going to go to Netta. And that's about it. 
when, when you actually have choice, what do you sort of uh, uh, make your decision on? Is it price? Is it selection? What? Is there, are people throwing around the words like cannabis desert here? Because that's like the first thing that yes. came to my mind. Okay. Um, hey, look, I love a bargain. So I'm mostly going by price. And I mean, uh, me and my business reporter who used to cover the legal weed industry until I came along, we talk about this all the time that like weed can be so cheap in Colorado that we're not really sure how anybody's making money off of it. Um, like I can get an eighth, which will like last me a week or two, uh, for 15 bucks at some places. Wow. Here wow. we have $75 eighths in places. <laughs> for the audience That's at inhumane. home, for the I'm audience sorry. at home, in case the mics didn't pick that up, the entire audience just <laughs> groaned in agony. $15 eighths. So we're all moving to Colorado, right? <laughs> yeah, apparently. <laughs> but I will say that one of the impacts of not having any stores in Massachusetts is that the ones that are open have been under so much strain. Um, the one in Brookline is one of the busiest cannabis stores in the country. They oh, wow. have 2,500 customers a day when the Jeez. average is like 120 national average. <laughs> so their like neighbors are not store? happy. Um, well, so they have like lines like crazy. People wait in line for hours there, especially on the weekends. And um, and the neighbors are really unhappy about it, even the ones that there's voted people, for there's, legalization. There's people peeing on their bushes. There's people peeing. I mean, that would turn there's anyone into smoking. a NIMBY. <laughs> There's people smoking weed all over their street, like when they're trying to, you know, get their kids from, you know, soccer practice. Um, there's litter. There's people parking all over the place. It's just one of those problems. One of them, you know, one of the neighbors framed it to me as like when you have a huge crowd of people, there's always like one or two that are going to be bad actors. And so when you have 2,500 people a day coming there, you know, it's like, it's like 20 volume. or 30. Yeah. <laughs> At least. The, the other issue. So plenty of them are, are nice, you know, law abiding, respectful people, but there's just those few. The other issue is inside is once you actually get inside, it's it's such a factory to no fault of theirs. It's like the because, Apple store in New York. But, but worse because the Apple store, you get to walk around and play with things. And <laughs> in this, you know, I, I brought my parents when they were visiting and my parents obviously the, my par I grew up in New Jersey so my parents have never been in a legal weed store and my mom wanted to walk around I mean she wanted to actually see what was behind all the shelves and ask questions and and they were great about answering questions but aside from that they want you to stay in your lane order what you want pay and and leave so that they can move the line along it's how you have to operate when you have 2500 customers but hopefully in a world where we have more like 500 stores you know you can actually have an, a shopping experience as opposed to just walking in and like sometimes and i go to the dispensary in my neighborhood and i'm the only person there that sounds so nice <laughs> <laughs> that's why they let me bring my dog inside the funny, the funny thing is, though, that all these sort of negative neighborhood impacts that are happening around the small handful of stores that we do have, it's, I, we should note, those problems are basically just a result of the scarcity of marijuana stores. Right. But what's funny is that those problems, and we pointed this out in the story, those problems are being used to argue for a further scarcity of marijuana stores, right? Like neighbors of other proposed facilities are sort of weaponizing what's happening at the few that are open, where it is kind of a mess. It does yeah. kind of suck. You wouldn't want to live next to it. And they're saying that that's what's going to happen here. If we These let this two store stores open, that's what's going to really happen here. really making my life hard, so I want zero stores. That's right. <laughs> All right, y'all. That is all we have time for tonight. Thank you so much for coming. And please give the Boston Globe reporters one more hand. They are so great. Thanks, thank man. you for having us. Thank you. And thank, thank you, you everyone for coming, for especially our moms. This has been the very first live bonus episode of On Something. 
Thanks to the Boston Globe cannabis team. That, again, is Dan Adams, Naomi Martin, and Felicia Gans. You can follow their coverage at bostonglobe.com. And this episode was recorded at the Comedy Factory in Boston, Massachusetts. Thanks so much for having us, and thank you for the production help. And new episodes of On Something are coming your way soon, we promise. We'll be back in a few weeks with a preview of season two, so make sure that you are subscribed and keep an eye on your feed. In the meantime, if you want to keep up with me, you can subscribe to the On Something newsletter at onsomething.org. On Something is a labor of love reported and written by Brad Turner and myself. Produced and mixed by Brad Turner and Rebecca Romberg. Our editor is Curtis Fox. Music by Brad Turner and Daniel Mesher. Our executive producers are Rachel Estabrook and Kevin Dale. On Something is made possible by lots and lots of talented people like Francie Swidler, Kim Wynn, Dave Burdick, Allison Borden, Matt Hers, Iris Gottlieb, and Kendall Smith. This program is made possible in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, a private corporation funded by the American people. This podcast is also made possible by Colorado Public Radio members. Learn about supporting Colorado Public Radio at CPR.org. 